So Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We'll begin with verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Well, may the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his holy word. If you hate your job, or if you have ever hated your job, which I imagine describes 110% of the people before me this morning, then this sermon is for you. Just a quick reminder in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, We've looked at, in the opening verses, in the first 11 verses, the problem of pleasure. Initially, Solomon reflects on how individual pleasures in this life are ultimately barren pursuits. That's right. We can have bodily pleasure. We can have bold projects that go well. But ultimately, everything seems barren. Then he turns inward in chapter 2 to verses 12 to 17, and he looks at, he considers the limits of earthly wisdom. The limits of earthly wisdom. Yes, wisdom is helpful because it can give us, it can be useful for our lives, but it also generates some heartfelt regret. Because we see that sometimes people who are foolish actually prosper and do really well in life. And those who are wise can be stricken in a way, inexplicably perhaps, that causes a downfall. And so in verse 17, this is a cheery part of the chapter. He says, so I hated life. So I hated life. Well, he looks at the bodily pleasures and bold projects. Then he has an inward turn and thinks about the limits of earthly wisdom. And now in the passage before us, he thinks about work, the work that we do. And I've titled this sermon, Thorns and Thistles, a field guide to work. Thorns and Thistles, a field guide to work. I want us to consider three this passage under three headings. But before I do so, remember that I told you last Sunday morning that of the four sermons I'll preach, my favorite will actually be tonight. 
I, uh, if you look, if you have a normal Bible headings, they kind of group this section with the concluding paragraph of chapter two. But I love that concluding chapter so much, though that concluding passage so much, that we're going to consider that tonight by itself under the title, A Pleasurable Providence. So uh, don't come back for the preacher, come back for the passage with a hundred of your closest friends. All right, so now let's turn to the passage before us, Thorns and Thistles, a Field Guide to Work. What I want us to consider is how he has anger over uncertainty. That's in verses 18 and 19. Then he has anguish over unfairness in the next two verses, 20 and 21. And then finally, annoyance day and night in verses 22 and 23. So anger over uncertainty, anguish over unfairness and annoyance day and night. Does it sound like some of the jobs that you've had in life? Maybe it's the job that you have now. Let's get started. First, there's anger over uncertainty. He's very clear. Verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Couldn't be clearer. I hated all my toil. But let's be clear. Sometimes we hate our toil. Why? Because we fail. But Solomon has already made clear that that's not true in his case, right? That's why I mentioned the bold projects of chapter two in verses four to eight. He talks about how he builds houses, plants gardens, makes gardens and parks with fruit trees, makes irrigation for the trees. He has everything. His projects are successful, and yet he still hates the work. So, and if you remember the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings uh, chapter 10, when she meets Solomon, she says, Behold, uh, not the half of what was told me it is true. Like you exceed beyond my wildest dreams, not just in your wisdom, but also in your wealth. Right? So, so he hates his toil, but it's not because he's not successful. He's marvelously successful. Well... Maybe it's the unpleasantness of the labor itself. But that doesn't seem possible because earlier in this passage in verse 10, he says, my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my work. So his work is successful and his work is pleasant. So what's the big deal? Well, it's the uncertainty. It's the uncertainty. There's an uncertainty here over his legacy. I must leave it to the man who will come after me, verse 19, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Now, uncertainty over one's legacy plagued Solomon even before he was king. If you remember, or if you, if you don't, I'll just tell you, in 1 Kings chapter 1, his mother Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet have to go to Solomon's father David and say, do you know that there is a rival, Adonijah, 
another son of David, said, I'm king. And people were following him. And so Solomon was threatened with death, not just disinheritance. And so he is sensitive to the fact that there is uncertainty over your legacy because of his own life. And we know what happened to Solomon's legacy after he died. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 43, records Solomon's death, that he sleeps with his fathers or something like that, and that Rehoboam, his son, reigns in his place. And what happens? That's the last verse of chapter 11. And in the next chapter, the next, the very next chapter, Rehoboam loses the kingdom. He loses the United Kingdom through his foolishness, through his arrogance, through his folly. Ten of the twelve tribes follow the upstart Jeroboam, and Rehoboam is left with Judah and Benjamin. And so there is anger over uncertainty. This continues in this life. This is not an ancient problem. It was an ancient problem, but it's not merely an ancient problem. It's a contemporary one too. Cornelius Vanderbilt, when he died in 1877, was the richest American alive. His son, William Henry, inherited that fortune and doubled it in less than nine years before he died in 1885. The Vanderbilts were wealthy beyond imagination, and they had bold projects which succeeded not just in the creation of wealth, but also in the construction of lavish homes. But it didn't last. It did not last. In 1883, Cornelius's grandson, William Kissam, and his wife, Alva, who were determined to make it into elite New York City society, had a masquerade ball of a thousand of their closest friends. In today's dollars, they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars just on floral arrangements. They spent just under $2 million on champagne for a single night. The total cost in today's dollars, about $7.5 million. Friends, even if you inherit vast sums of money, if you start blowing $7.5 million on a single night, you will be surprised at how quickly the wealth dissipates. Fast forward to 2018. The Vanderbilts had built in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, not a um, town known for its uh, low economic housing, a 138,000 square foot mansion. A 138,000 square foot mansion named the Breakers. And in 2018, after continuous occupation, since it was built in the 1890s, the last two Vanderbilts left, a brother and a sister. They were 
told to go. They didn't have the money to keep up the house. And so they, they sold it to the local preservation society. And then they got squabbling about things. They lived, I think, rent-free on the top floor. And the preservation society said, we're done with you. We're done with you. And I, have no, I don't know anything about them. But in a hundred, hundred plus intervening years, there was a lot of money that was dissipated. And what about you? It is sobering to think that whatever your net worth is, your grandchildren, if they get any money at all, will probably dissipate it. That it'll just be gone. And I'm not being, I'm not, I mean, this is statistically how things are. If, well, maybe you say that my wealth is uh, in a large multinational corporation of which we have some here in Northwest Arkansas. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was started in 1896. It was the first index of its kind that allowed investors to see how the market was doing because it selected companies from different industries and had this basket. And so you could see how the market was going. It's still going on today. 1896. Guess what percent of the original companies on the Dow Jones Industrial Average are still on the Dow Jones Industrial Average? Guess what, what percent? Zero. 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 When General Electric was uh, taken off the Dow, it's been in the last 20 years, it was the last of the original companies to go. So you could have vast wealth that you give to your children and they give, they spend it, they give to their grandchildren, they spend it. And then your uh, great-grandchildren are, um, are trying to rub two nickels together for food. You could invest in companies, Apple, Walmart, Google, Microsoft, and, uh, and then just like that, they could be gone. So we can be anger, uh, angry over the uncertainty. I'm going to spend up all this money, and what's it going to go to? Or we can come back tonight and learn about a pleasurable providence. That's our first point. Anger over uncertainty. Now, the wealth doesn't last, but neither does the anger. Neither does the anger. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get angry. Even I get angry. Verse 18. But then the anger, what does it do? Well, you just get sad. Verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. I gave my heart up over to despair. Now, there is anguish here over unfairness. Now, I don't think it's technically speaking unfairness, um, but because it's not as though he has this image of somebody pillaging him, but it's the felt experience of how I am doing the work 
and someone else is getting it. Verse 21. Sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. So here, I don't think the complaint is the uncertainty of is it going to be a wise person or a foolish person, but it's instead the mere fact of the transfer, right? I I have to give my work over to someone else. Why should that person gain from my labor? One of the things that's true about the history of the world is that if your building stands up long enough, it's going to belong to your opponents. Take the Hagia Sophia, uh, built in 537 in Constantinople, a true marvel of the world, a church, cathedral. Well, it became a mosque after the Ottoman Empire conquered Constantinople in 1453, Istanbul was Constantinople, and that mosque, it used to be a church. Well, it actually goes the opposite way, too. The Cathedral of Our Lady of the Assumption in Cordoba, Spain, is actually known as the Mosque Cathedral of Cordoba, or even the Great Mosque of Cordoba, because it was built by Muslim conquerors. It was built as a mosque by Muslims, but it became and remains, it became a cathedral in 1236, and it remains one today. So there is anger over uncertainty, but there's also anguish over unfairness. There's a movie which I haven't seen, and I probably should be embarrassed that I haven't seen it, but if I was one to be embarrassed, which I'm not, which is the Field of Dreams. And in the Field of Dreams, there's this clip, uh, or this, there's this phrase, if you build it, they will come. And I watched the little clip on YouTube just to confirm that this was the case. And if you see something on the internet, you know it's true. So if you build it, that's a joke. Yes, that's a joke. If you build it, they will come. If you build it, they will come. History has another line. If you build it, they will conquer it, right? If you build it, they will take it. Now, sometimes it is unjust for people to take what you have worked hard to get. They steal it from you. You're alive and they take it. But other times, your uh, great, 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 great grandchildren can't withstand the invaders, (laughs) They just can't, they can't fend off the attackers. And so what you built becomes useful for someone else. And so Solomon feels the seeming unfairness of that. Now, this uh, will not be the way that we would ever launch a building campaign here at Covenant Church Fayetteville. But it's interesting to think about how 4511 West Weddington Drive, a thousand years ago, I mean, a thousand years from now, a thousand years ago was a dirt patch, but a thousand years from now, it could be an archaeological site and people could dig down layer after layer and say, wow, this was a gospel preaching church. 
for hundreds of years. Or maybe, maybe, you know, it was, it was, it looks like this mosque had a Christian foundation. You know, for the first 250, 500 years at 4511 West Weddington, they were Christians. And then it was a mosque. Or maybe they'll say, wow, they worshiped Zeus in Fayetteville, Arkansas in the year 3500 at 4511 West Weddington Drive. It is a sobering thought, but it ought to turn our hearts away from thinking that our bold projects will outlive us and that we will have a legacy and an inheritance that we can point to in this fallen world and say, that's what we did and it stands forever. No, my friends, only what the Lord does stands forever And the work that he is doing is in our hearts. And that work is a sure and certain work because he who promised is faithful and he will surely do it. So anger over uncertainty, anguish over unfairness, and finally annoyance day and night. Annoyance day and night. I love this section of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I think if you are human, you have to relate to it. Verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So what do you get for all your hard work? Well, The days, they're full of sorrow. The work itself, it's a vexation. At night, you, your heart does not rest, right? That describes the work of fallen condition. Now, don't get me wrong. We are, we're made to work. We're working people in the sense that made in the image of God, who is a creator. We do not create, but we can in a way, follow our creator in making and doing and working. We are to work six days as he did in making the world and rest on the seventh. But if we make working the goal of our lives, it will be depressing. The, um, there is a, uh, a book written by a Czech economist And in it, he talks about how it used to be that you asked people, who's your family? Because especially in Europe with um, aristocracy. But now we ask people what they do. And he said that, that, you know, he's a celebrated Czech economist. And uh, and Tomas Sedlacek is his name. Um, and it's in the book Economics of Good and Evil. He asked somebody what, it was a fancy party, and he said, so what do you do? And the man said, nothing. And Sedlacek thought, we're going to be friends, because of course the man was highly accomplished, but he was saying, I don't want to be defined by my work. If you are defined by your work, then these verses should resonate with you deeply. And, and it's all of our work, right? Now, if, if we think about the examples are, that are given, you know, 
If, if our job was picking cotton, literally toiling beneath the sun in the, in the, in the uh, language of verse 22, then that would be really hard. Or if we were working a night shift in the factory, then our, our hearts really wouldn't rest in the language of verse 22. Sorry, verse 23. But every job that we have is challenging. It has its own little challenges. Even if the work does not require physical labor, even if it's in relative comfort and ease, even if you are singularly accomplished and skilled to do the work, there will be some part of the work that drives you bonkers. So, February 14th, 1778. I never have a single quiet hour here. I can only compose at night so that I can't get up early as well. Besides, one is not always in the mood for working. I could, to be sure, scribble off things the whole day long. But a composition of this kind goes out into the world, and naturally I do not want to have cause to be ashamed of my name on the title page. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Mozart, in his 35-year life, 35-year life, composed over 600 works. Some would say over 800 works. Correction. We actually don't know how many works he composed. Those are only the works that he took the trouble, in his words, to copy out. He hated the drudgery of copying out the notes. He composed the music in his head and he wrote it, up, wrote it down flawlessly. I think there were three symphonies that he composed towards the end of his life in like a month. And, and he just ha- had it all in his head. There was an instance when he, he, w- he found the... Uh, copying out the notes so frustrating that he would wait until the last minute. And there's a story where Mozart is sitting at the keyboard because he's in a company other musicians. And he quickly dashed off the music in his head for them because they needed the notes. And the emperor came over to talk to Mozart and was astonished to see that there were blank sheets on the keyboard. And the emperor said, well, where's the music? In my head. It's in my head. He was so... In in, uh, April 20th, 1782, he's writing to his sister, and he blames the delay in writing her back, quote, on account of the wearisome labor of writing these small notes. And so he writes, I could not finish the composition any sooner. And even so, it's awkwardly done. For the prelude ought to come first and the fugue to follow. But I composed the fugue first and wrote it down while I was thinking out the prelude. Don't miss that. I composed the fugue first and wrote it down while I was thinking out the prelude. 
Mozart was such a singular genius that while he was scribbling notes on a page, he was actively composing another piece of music. If I could write a single Mozart quality composition in my head and then write it down, all of the notes for a symphony from memory, I would think that I would be the happiest man of all time. And possibly I would be the first time. The first time. And maybe the second time, but not the 500th time, not the 600th time. It would be, I would, I would hear myself say, oh, the drudgery of writing down the notes. And all of you would roll your eyes and say, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Yes, it's just so wearisome. It's so wearisome. But I use that example because I was, I was tempted to use an example of where we would all go, oh, that's a terrible, miserable job, right? Testing out shark protective suits. Like, that's a bad job. Who wants that job? But the key is, even if you are a genius and the music comes to you effortlessly, then you will have something in this life that will make you grit your teeth and say, why do I have to do this? This is so wearisome. All I can find is annoyance day and night. I don't get any rest to write down the notes until everybody's asleep. And then I have a hard time getting up in the morning. And guess what? If you are an unbeliever here this morning, then you need to ask yourself what your philosophy of life is that can make sense of a genius like Mozart finding annoyance in the effortless work of composition. Now, if you're a believer here this morning, then you know that original sin corrupted everything that we can face thorns and thistles in this life. That even when I sit in my, my uh, air-conditioned office on campus with all sorts of technology helps, I can, and I have a problem connecting my Bluetooth mouse to my computer, and I can think that this is the end of the world. <laughs> I need to have some perspective and turn to the Lord in gratitude for all that he has given me, all that he has given you to do. So if you're an unbeliever, then you should say, do I have a philosophy of life that makes sense of the constant desire that we have to control everything about our lives? So much so that in the face of tremendous greatness, we can still be frustrated and angry. And if we're believers this morning, then we should ask ourselves, do, am I as graceless in my approach to the thorns and thistles of life as an unbeliever? Or do I trust in a pleasurable providence? Either way, we should return tonight to learn more about what to think about that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that the Lord Jesus 
lived the perfect life that we cannot live. And thank you that his life is an example for us to follow. And we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to how we are ungrateful for the work that you've given us to do. And we pray that you would make us faithful followers of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.